Well, greetings, brethren. It's a real privilege to have the opportunity of speaking to you once again, particularly as we approach the Passover season. You know, every year as the Passover approaches, we begin to focus our attention on this particular observance. We begin to think about it. We hear sermons on it. We have articles in the Living Church News regarding the Passover. And one of the things that is very important that we individually should reflect on every year is the fact that we are to take the Passover in a worthy manner. Now, we've often heard and we've read the scriptures that we should not take the Passover unworthily. What does that mean? What does it mean to you? What, what's happened in your life since the last Passover? Have you sinned since last Passover? Have you broken one of the Ten Commandments? Well, if you don't think you've sinned since last Passover, then that's a pretty good guarantee that you have. You're, you're not being honest with yourself if you don't think you have. Because obviously uh, all of us have. What does it mean to take the Passover unworthily? If you have sinned, does that make you unworthy to take the Passover? I know every year or over the years that I've been in the ministry, uh, many times uh, people have uh, come up to me and uh, they've been concerned, they've been uh, perhaps anxious about some incident or some event in their life and wondered if somehow they weren't worthy to take the Passover. Well, I want to examine that subject today and I think it's very important for us to understand right up front that none of us are worthy of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. What would you have to do to have earned or deserved or be worthy of Jesus Christ taking your place and dying in your stead? Well, the Scripture is very plain and tells us in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul writing here in Romans chapter 5, that... Uh, God commends His love toward us. God commends His love toward us in Romans 5, 8, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ did not die for you or for me because we were somehow worthy or deserving. He commends His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So let's understand this matter of taking the Passover in a worthy manner because it is a very important subject. To begin with, let's set the stage by going back to the book of Exodus chapter 12 and let's look a little bit at the circumstances concerning the very first Passover. In Exodus chapter 12 and verse 1, we're told that the eternal God spoke unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, and he told them, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Talking of here in the spring. Actually, when you understand the history, uh, you realize that prior to this time, the, the year began in the fall, going back to the time of creation. And now uh, God changed the beginning of the year to the spring because now he was getting ready to introduce his holy days and God's holy day plan starts in the spring and works forward to the fall picturing God's great plan of salvation because the harvest seasons in ancient Israel and the plan of harvest that uh, the people saw in their own land year by year was a type of the spiritual harvest that God is in the process of carrying out. Now, Moses was told by God that he was to speak to the congregation to tell them in the tenth day of the month they were to select out a lamb, a lamb for each household. If a household was too small for a lamb, they could combine with neighbors and have maybe extended family. The lamb was to be selected, verse 5, as a male of the first year, and it was to be without blemish. It was to be kept, verse 6, up until the 14th day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel was to kill it at dusk or at twilight. Literal Hebrew is between the two evenings. In other words, that 
period of time that starts at sunset uh, and concludes with total darkness, about an hour or so of dusk or twilight. This, by the way, uh, uh, this really settles the issue when you, uh, when you properly understand it because the day begins and ends at sunset and therefore the twilight or dusk is always the beginning of a day as opposed to the end of a day. Sunset uh, represents the end of a day and the twilight or dusk period that follows it uh, is the beginning of the new day. And so if it was to be kept up until the 14th day of the first month and it was to be killed in the twilight period of this 14th day, that meant the beginning of the 14th. They were then, as they slit the lamb's throat, they were to, the blood poured out, they were to collect it in uh, like a bowl or, or a vessel of some sort. And they were then to take uh, some hyssop and dip into the blood and they were to smear it on the doorpost and on the upper lentil of the house. And they were to roast the lamb whole uh, and they were to consume it, eating it with unleavened bread. Uh, and with bitter herbs, as we're told in verse 8. It was not to be uh, eaten raw. It was not to be stewed, but it was to be dry roasted over fire. And the entire carcass was to be roasted together. It was not to be uh, cut up and, and bones broken or that sort of thing. None of it was to be left until the morning. And what was left over was to be burned with fire. They were to eat it. Dressed and ready, as it mentions in verse 11. Their shoes on their feet, their staff in their hand. They were to eat it with a sense of urgency. Now, verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and I will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Eternal. The blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. This day shall be unto you for a memorial. And you shall keep it a feast to the eternal throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. So the Passover was instituted. It was a permanent institution. It was to be kept as a memorial. Now, I want us to examine that word memorial a little bit and look uh, through, and we'll see how this ties in with the New Testament. A memorial is for the purpose of remembering. You go to a cemetery, and there are normally uh, markers up on the graves. And those markers uh, remind us of people who have previously lived and died, uh, tells us their names, often uh, some inscription, maybe just their birth date and death date, or sometimes something else is on there. It's there as a memorial, as a reminder. Uh, there are various things that we celebrate in different nations. Most nations have days that they have set aside as a reminder or a memorial, either of some great individual in the history of that country or some particular event in the nation's history, we are brought into remembrance of certain things because a people who live without memory of the past are a people that very quickly lose their identity. They have no sense of who they are, where they have come from, and, and certainly where they're going. So God institutes a festival here that is to be observed as a memorial. It's a reminder of something, and it's a reminder of the starting point in God's plan. The death angel passed through the land of Egypt on the night of the 14th, around midnight. The death angel passed through the land, and the firstborn in every household was struck dead, except those households that were under the blood of the lamb. The blood of the lamb posted on the doorpost was a reminder of something. It was a reminder to the death angel who passed over that household. That, of course, is the origin of the term Passover. That's what we observe. We observe the Passover. We are reminded of being passed over. 
God gave specific instructions about the lamb that was to be slaughtered here on this evening, and this set the pace for what was to be observed on into the future. God set the uh, instructions because these instructions were in themselves a type or a reminder. The Passover lamb was to be selected carefully. It was to be with, it was to be a lamb. It was to be without spot or blemish. Now there was a very important reason for that because when we go to the book of John, chapter one, we're introduced to Jesus Christ, who he really was. The fact that he was the one who was in the beginning with God, he himself was God. He was the very instrument of creation. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And as we're told in John chapter 1 and verse 14, the Word, the one who was in the beginning with God and who was God, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, John wrote, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ, the Word, became flesh. Now, John the Apostle goes on to write about John the Baptist, who was the forerunner, who bore witness of Jesus. And when Jesus came, John bore witness of him in a very special way. In fact, in verse 29 of John 1, we're told, The next day, when John saw Jesus coming to him, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, that lamb that was slaughtered over 14 and a half centuries before this event took place that's recorded in John 1, that lamb that was slaughtered over 14 and a half centuries earlier in the land of Egypt was a type, it was a forerunner, of the one who came as the Lamb of God, the real Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sins of the world. Because, let's face it, brethren, the blood of bulls and goats can't pay for your sin and it can't pay for mine. Our sin can only be paid for by the life of the Creator. He came to take away the sins of the world. Now, let's understand a little further. Let's go back to the book of Luke, and let's look at the final Passover that Jesus observed with his disciples. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 7, we're told, Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. Now, we understand that the seven days of unleavened bread began the day after the Passover, the 15th day of the first month. That's made plain in Leviticus 23 and other scriptures. But in the Gospels, it refers to the day leading up to the Passover supper, in other words, the day of the 13th, as the first day of unleavened bread or the first day of unleavening. Uh, That's the sense of it and and what it refers to uh, commonly in the uh, towns and villages and uh, cities of the uh, area of Judea and Galilee. There were uh, communal ovens in a, in a neighborhood where bread would normally be baked. Uh, various women uh, in the uh, surrounding homes in the neighborhood, uh, in the, let's say for the average person, in, in large homes and villas, there was uh, normally they would have an oven right there. But many of the smaller homes, uh, they would uh, share uh, this oven. And you think about it, you know, that makes sense. Uh, these were often outdoor ovens. Uh, if you have a small home, and you're heating with a wood fire, uh, you heat up an oven to bake bread every day, and you've heated up the whole house. And so this was normally done in this way. And the 13th day of the first month, noon, was the deadline. That was the last time which leavened products could be baked in the communal ovens. Uh, Following that, uh, the uh, ovens themselves were cleaned. So... uh, any 11th products you had to bake by noon on the 13th, and you had then a day and a half to use them up before uh, all of the leavening and all the remnants of it had to be disposed of, either consumed or else burned with fire. So that, uh, even the day of the 13th, came to be called the first day of unleavened 
or the first day of unleavened bread, not because they, uh, it was part of the actual feast days, uh, the seven days of unleavened bread, but because it was uh, literally the beginning of the time when uh, leavening was removed and when uh, unleavened bread began to be baked there that afternoon. So, uh, this particular time, this was the time when the Passover uh, would be properly slaughtered. Jesus sent Peter and John, and he told them, verse 8, Go and prepare us the Passover that we may eat. So it was the Last Supper, what's called the Last Supper, was the Passover. That's what Jesus Christ himself called it. And they said, Where do you want us to go? Notice, they weren't surprised by the date. They didn't say, Why should we do it now? Uh, shouldn't it be done a day later? They, did, they had no question about why. They simply asked, Where? And Jesus said, gave them instructions about going into the city and seeing a man and following him. And he would show them an upper room, verse 12, and there they were to make ready. So we're told in verse 13, they went and found as he had said, and they made ready the Passover. And when the hour was come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And he said unto them, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I'm going to go through something in the hours ahead. And by the way, when you look at what Jesus went through, the entire fulfillment of the Passover occurred between sunset that began the 14th and sunset that ended the 14th. During that 24-hour period of time, Jesus ate, the final, his final meal with the disciples, the Last Supper, the Passover. He ate that meal with the disciples. He uh, gave them instructions, and those instructions are recorded. He, they went out of the city and up there to the Mount of Olives where uh, he prayed and really sought God in that period of hours leading up to his arrest. He was arrested and taken then in the wee hours of the morning before the high priest. The Sanhedrin was hastily and, in fact, illegally uh, convened. And Jesus was condemned. By daybreak, he was taken to Pilate. Uh, he went to Herod and then came back to Pilate. Uh, he was beaten. Finally, he was taken out and was crucified and spent the daylight portion of the uh, Passover day uh, being crucified, finally dying about 3 o'clock that afternoon, and was uh, taken down and was buried late that afternoon just as the sun was setting and the high day was about to begin. So think about it. You know, there's been confusion over the years, and some have thought, well, uh, you know, properly the Passover uh, was the twilight period that began the 15th. Well, that's not so. That's not what the Scripture says. And every single aspect of the fulfillment of the Passover occurred during the 24-hour period between the beginning of the 14th and the end of the 14th. Jesus ate the meal. He was arrested, he was crucified, he was buried, and when sunset came at the end of the 14th, he was dead, he was unconscious, he was in his grave, and all of the things that were connected with the Passover fulfillment had already been fulfilled, and Jesus was asleep in the grave for three days and three nights, beginning at that period of sunset that ended the day of the Passover. Now, Jesus sat down. He wanted to eat this Passover with them before he suffered. And he said, verse 16, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He took the cup and he gave thanks. And he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. He took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he said unto them, this is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Likewise also after supper, saying, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. Jesus Christ took two of the items on the table as he ate this Old Testament Passover meal with his disciples. And in the course of that meal, he introduced not a new time, not a new day. He introduced new symbols. Now, what were these symbols? The broken bread. He took some of the unleavened bread that was on the table and he broke it. 
And he said, this is my body, broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Also, he took a cup, a cup of the wine, and he uh, blessed it. And he told them to all drink some of it. And he said, this is my blood shed for you. Jesus said, this do in remembrance of me. Now, remember what we read back in Exodus 12? The Passover was to be observed as a memorial. Jesus Christ said the same thing right here. He said, this is to be done. These symbols are to be partaken of as a memorial in remembrance of me. You are to be reminded of me every year. When you partake of these symbols, you are to be reminded of my sacrifice, of what I did for you. Ancient Israel, when they slaughtered the lamb, looked back and were reminded the fact that the death angel had passed them over, that they had been exempted from death because of the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their ancestors in Egypt. Now the Lamb of God has come, the one who is truly to take away the sins of the world, the one to whom that ancient Lamb in Egypt and all the subsequent reenactments of that in the households over the centuries prior, the one to whom all of that symbolism had pointed had now come. And he selected two items that were to be symbols of his sacrifice. And we are to be reminded. We're to do it as a reminder. The uh, uh, word here in the, in the Greek language has to do with uh, uh, a memorial, that which calls to mind. It was a word that was uh, sometimes used, as, uh, used to describe tombs, which were a memorial to the dead. It means that which calls to mind. So when we take the Passover in just a short amount of time, a few weeks, When we take of the Passover, we're taking of the symbols that remind us of what Jesus Christ did. Now, let's go from there on back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, because when you understand that we are partaking of symbols that remind us of something, then we're getting to the key of understanding what it means to partake of the Passover in a worthy manner. Notice what the Apostle Paul said here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 23. He said, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, Take eat, this is my body which is broken for me, broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner, he took the cup. After he had supped, and he said, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, he didn't say, Drink it as often as you want to. He said, Every time you do it in remembrance of me. In other words, the times when you drink of the cup, you eat of bread and drink of a cup uh, many, many times through the year, but on one particular occasion, the night of the Passover. It is to be done in remembrance of Jesus Christ. It is a memorial of his sacrifice, and it is to be partaken of in a way that reminds us of what our Savior did for you and for me. He said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show the Lord's death till he come. It is a memorial. And therefore, we partake of this memorial at the same time that ancient Israel partook of it in the land of Egypt, the same night that Jesus and his disciples partook of it, the night that represents the beginning of the Passover day, the time in which Jesus fulfilled all of the symbolism of that original Passover lamb. For he came as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. Jesus went on to explain that if you eat this bread, verse 27, and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily, you will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. He went on to say, but let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of 
that bread and drink of that cup. He that eats and drinks unworthily, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body, not properly judging and understanding what is involved with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And Paul said there are consequences for that. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. There are those who had partaken of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, but they had not valued and appreciated a portion of that sacrifice. In this case, specifically, uh, the broken body. The broken bread was symbolic of Jesus Christ's broken body. By His stripes were healed. There are those who had not properly discerned, not properly valued and understood that aspect of the sacrifice, and as a result, uh, they had uh, prematurely died or were weak and sickly. Now, that's not the only reason for which someone may not be healed, but that is a reason. And Paul said that it was a specific reason why some in Corinth uh, had some of the problems that they did. Paul went on to explain, For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. Now, what does that mean? Well, the context explains it. He goes on to say, When we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. You know, the best thing is for us to judge ourselves. If we don't judge ourselves, then God has to chasten and correct us. And even that is representative of God's mercy. It's done so that we will not be condemned with the world. Because there are three levels, let's say, of judgment. First, we judge ourselves. We take stock of ourselves. We evaluate and examine. And if we're not doing that properly, then then God begins to take steps to sort of shake us up and wake us up and get our attention. God begins to chasten us, to humble us, to deal with us. Why? Because God wants us to wake up. Because if we don't wake up spiritually, then ultimately we will share in the consequences of the judgment of God that comes on this world. And God does not want us to perish with the ungodly. Now, the Apostle Paul introduces the concept and expounds it about the importance of self-examination in the context of the Passover. He doesn't say, well, sort of look at yourself, and if you haven't been good enough, then don't take of it this year. Paul commands us, and it's not Paul's command, it's God's command. Paul commands us that we are to eat of that bread and drink of that cup. We are to partake of the symbols of the sacrifice of our Savior. If we have been baptized, if we have surrendered ourselves and been baptized, accepting the sacrifice of our Savior, then every year as the Passover comes around, we are to partake of the symbols of that sacrifice as a reminder of what our Savior did in our behalf. But Paul says, you're not to come in casually, carelessly. You're not to partake of it in a careless or casual way. That's what unworthily means. To partake of it in a way that does not properly discern, does not properly examine and understand the meaning of that sacrifice, that does not properly examine and understand our own lives. Because that's what we're uh, to do. He says we are to judge ourselves, and he says let a man examine himself, and then eat of that bread and drink of that cup. What does it mean to examine yourself? What are you to look for? Do you just sort of go over your life with a magnifying glass and see if you messed up? Well, the answer goes far deeper. And let's understand something. The kind of self-examination the Scripture talks about is very difficult. It's not a matter of just saying, well, I messed up over here, I lost my temper there, I, I did this or I did that. It goes far deeper. You know, the heart... First and foremost, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The hardest thing for any of us to do is to be frankly, brutally honest with ourselves about ourselves, really seeing 
what's there. That doesn't come easily. That doesn't come naturally. We need God's help to honestly examine and see. What does it mean to examine? What are you and I to look for? Well, let's take note of that. In Luke 12:56, we have an example that helps us understand what this whole concept of examination actually means. I want to show you two or three places where this word is used and, and gives us a little insight as to what we're supposed to be doing. In Luke 12:56, Jesus talking to the Pharisees said, You hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it you do not discern this time? Now, the word that's used here for discern is a word that means to examine. You can examine the face of the sky. You can discern. You can judge. You can have uh, a sense of what is there. In that case, he said, you, you look at the sky. You can tell the weather that's coming in, but you can't look at the signs of the times around you. So, the word examine has to do with discerning. Notice over in uh, Luke chapter 14, and verse 19, another example, uh, this is one of the parables Christ gave of the king making a great supper and inviting people, and people began to make excuses. And in verse 19, uh, one man's excuse, he said, well, I bought, uh, bought some oxen. I bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I'd like to be excused. Now, the word that's used here for prove is the same word, discern or examine. I must go to prove them. He didn't mean he was going to go look them up in the encyclopedia and see if they were really oxen. He meant he was going to put them to the test. He was going to try them out. He was going to, to see if they really did what they were supposed to do, if they uh, met the test of what he was expecting. So this word for examine or discern or, or prove. Let's notice one other place back in 1 Peter chapter 1. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and uh, verse 7, Peter writing says that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. The trial of your faith. Faith put to the test. The context is that Peter is talking about trials and tests. He compares it uh, to the refining process for metals. Talks about uh, precious metals such as gold going through a refining process in, in which it is melted and the impurities rise to the top and they're skimmed off. So to examine ourselves means to discern, to prove, to put to the test, to in that sense, really check ourselves out. Now, what is it that you and I ought to be checking for? What is it that you examine? Is it just a matter of sort of scrutinizing your life with a magnifying glass and saying, well, I made this mistake and I lost my temper here and I said this when I shouldn't have and, and I did this? Is that, is that what it's talking about? You just sort of make a, uh, some sort of a list? Well, frankly, that, that really misses the point. God is after our examination on a deeper level. Let's notice back in the book of Micah, chapter 6. Micah, chapter 6, uh, God uh, stresses in verse 2, through the pen of Micah, uh, that the Eternal has a controversy with His people. Uh, he will plead with Israel. Coming on down into uh, verse 7, he talks about the externals of religion. You know, it's easy for people to get caught up in religiosity, to get caught up in ceremony, to get caught up in going through the forms of religion. Micah indicted the people of his day. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ uh, often talked to the Pharisees and those who were like them of the fact that they were substituting form for reality. They were keeping the Sabbath. They were keeping the holy days. They were tithing. They were doing all of these things, and that's good and right. You remember what Jesus told them, recorded in Matthew 23. He said, you Pharisees. He said, you tithe, mint and cumin and annas, you tithe on these tiny little garden plants. And yet, you have omitted something 
of far greater significance. And he said, this ought you to have done and not left the other undone. Notice what Micah says in Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the eternal require of you but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? You see, is God going to be pleased, as he mentions here in verse 7, with just the externals, with thousands of rams or ten thousands of rivers of oil? Is it just the externals, talking here of the temple sacrificial system? There were those who thought it didn't matter how they lived their lives through the rest of the week. It didn't matter how they dealt with other people. If they went through the form of religion and they brought their sacrifice to the temple and they showed up on the Sabbath and they were there on the holy day and they did these things, that that made everything else okay. And of course, the point that Micah made is God is not, imp- is not impressed with our simply going through externals and trying to look good to others and thinking that if we have uh, followed certain rules that that's all there is. God is after a change in our lives that starts on the inside and comes out. Yes, it involves our outward actions. Yes, it involves what we say and what we do. Yes, it involves tithing and Sabbath keeping and all the rest. But all that God requires can be summed up with these three things. What does God require? What is He after? Because if you and I are going to examine our lives, if we're going to be looking for what God is looking for, then we need to examine these areas. To do justly. To love mercy. To walk humbly with God. Because as you and I come before God, at the time of the Passover, wanting to partake of the symbols that Jesus Christ said were to be observed as a memorial, as a reminder of His sacrifice year by year. And we want to partake of that in a worthy manner, a careful manner, a way that shows that we really appreciate and discern what Jesus Christ did for us and that we take that sacrifice seriously. Then what we're told to look at are these three things. This is what God is after. Now, again, let's understand. Let's break that down a little more fully. Let's look first at the concept of doing justly. What what, what does that entail? Well, back in the book of James, uh, James chapter 1 and verse 22. Be you doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving your own selves. It's not enough just to know the truth. Not enough just to hear God's Word or to read God's Word. We are to be doers of the Word. If any be a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he's like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. He beholds himself, goes his way, and immediately forgets what manner of man he was. Whoso looks into the perfect law of liberty, and that's what God's law is called the perfect law of liberty. It is a complete law that shows us how we are to live, and it really is the way to freedom. He looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues therein, not being a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This man shall be blessed in his deed. If any man among you seems to be religious, seems to be and yet does not bridle, does not control his tongue. He deceives his own heart, and that man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. There are two things that together define pure religion. Right here in verse 27. Pure religion, undefiled. What is God after? Well, he says to visit the fatherless and the widows, to show attention, to help and encourage those who are not in a position to return the favor. The fatherless and the widow were people uh, who were really sort of at the mercy of what was going on around them. They lacked a defender. They were people who were in a position to be taken advantage of. 
taking advantage of economically and taking advantage of in other ways. God is a defender of the defenseless. You know, it's easy for people to want to get involved with others who can return the favor, who can help them, who can sort of advance their career, who can do various things for them. But to help those who are not in a position to return the favor, to help them because it's the right thing to do, to be in that role, that is the, that's what God's looking for, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Not to be part and parcel of this society. Not to see how close we can get, sort of dabble our foot in the cesspool, as it were. In the things we watch on television, or the entertainment that we surround ourselves with, or even just the way we dress and present ourselves, the way we act, the way we look, to be part and parcel of this world, to be as close to this world as we can, taking on the decadent values, the vanity, the jealousy, the lust, all of the decadence that characterizes this society. If we are to do justly, That involves doing the right thing. That involves the way we treat others. That involves keeping our distance from this world, not being part and parcel of it. Not just blending in and fitting in to where you can't tell where the world stops and the church starts. Brethren, that shouldn't be the case. If we're examining ourselves, one of the things we have to examine is to what extent are we keeping ourselves unspotted from the world. If we're doing justly, then we're concerned about God's requirements of what is just, of what is right, of what God is after. James 2.17 says, uh, Faith, if it has not works, is dead, being alone. God is after living faith, responsive faith. If we really believe, if we know and know that we know, that Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God the Father, that He's going to be returning to this earth to set up His kingdom. And we anticipate and look forward to that kingdom. Then our focus isn't on being part of this world and being accepted and being approved and sort of fitting in and identifying with this world and this society because, brethren, make no mistake about it, this world and its value system is going to pass from the scene. The world passes away. John tells us in 1 John 2, The world passes away, and the lust thereof. But he that does the will of God abides forever. And that's what we need to be focused on. Doing justly, the Scripture says. Notice in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul uh, exhorted, those to whom he was writing in verse 15 reminded them, What concord has Christ with Belial? What part has he that believes with an infidel? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and be you separate, says the, says the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I'll be a father unto you, and you'll be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. God says that we're not to be part of this world. We're not to blend in and fit in with this society. We are to remain as distinct in our identity as the people of God, holding forth the word of life by our actions, by the way that we conduct ourselves. We're to exemplify the values that are going to endure forever. If our affection is really set on the things that are above, If our life is caught up with wanting to be part of the kingdom of God, then this world doesn't hold some great attraction for us. Coming on down in chapter 7, verse 1 of 2 Corinthians, we're told, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 
If we really understand that, if we understand the promises God has, we have a motive to continue to go forward to cleanse ourselves, to get as far from being part of this world, fitting in with the world, blending in with this society, this culture, this decadent way of life that characterizes virtually everything in society, a whole approach and way of life. What are our values? Well, the Apostle Paul talks about it in Colossians chapter 3. And he explains in, in Colossians 3 verse 1 and verse 2 give you one of the greatest keys to overcoming. If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things that are above where Christ sits on the right hand of God. How are you and I risen with Christ right now? When you and I went into the waters of baptism, the old man was buried. And we came up out of that water. And that was a type, that was a figurative uh, illustration of the fact that we will ultimately be born of the Spirit. You know, Paul, uh, Christ talked about uh, being born of the water and of the Spirit. You and I go into a watery grave and that really represents what we look forward to. Because we aren't yet born again. We've been begotten of God. But sprinkling won't do. Uh, sort of getting a little bit poured on you won't do. You have to be buried with Christ. And then you rise with Christ. You come up out of a watery grave. And that is a picture of what we anticipate that the time will literally come when we will rise out of a physical grave and we will not simply be born of the water, we will be born of the Spirit. We will be born again at the resurrection, children of the resurrection. If you are risen with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Where do we set our affection? You see, that's one of the greatest keys to overcoming because what we love, we cherish, we hold on to. What we don't love, we turn loose of, we want to get away from. We have to set our affection on the things that are above. To do justly involves focusing on obeying God on doing the right thing. Set our affection on the things that are above. And then we know, as he says in verse 4, that when Christ shall appear, then we will also appear with Him in glory. If we love the things that He loves, when He comes back, we're going to be there with Him. Part of that. We're to put to death our, the members here on the earth, aspects of our life of our former life, the immorality, the uncleanness, the wrong affections, the evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. This is why the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience. That's who it's going to come on, those who are the children of disobedience. We're to put off, verse 8, anger and wrath and malice and blasphemy. Put off filthy communication. Verse 10, we're to put on the new man, which is created in knowledge after the image of him that created him. We're renewed in knowledge. We're changed and transformed. You see, God is writing His laws in our hearts and in our minds. God's law is there as a guide. It is to point out what's right and wrong. To do justly, if we examine our lives, then what we have to examine is where are we setting our affections? Are we identifying with this world and its decadent ways? Are we trying to blend in with the world? Look like, act like, be like, be part and parcel of this world? Or are our affections set on high? Have we set our affections on the things that are above? Are we renewed in our thinking? to where we love what God loves and we want that way of life. We want to walk in and follow the way that God outlines. So the Scripture tells us 
that we are to do justly, and it also says we are to love mercy. To love mercy. Matthew chapter 4. Notice what we see here from Jesus Himself. Here we find individuals who Jesus called as His disciples. And we find that uh, uh, Peter and Andrew were fishing, and Christ had had previous dealings with him, and he tells them to uh, come and follow me, verse 19, and I will make you fishers of men. And straightway they left their nets and followed him. Now, we read over that, and that seems like a simple enough statement, and it is. Do you realize there is a very interesting lesson that is illustrated in verse 20, and it ties in with the subject of mercy. Now, how in the world could that be? What, what is that talking? Uh, how does that connect? Well, let me show you, because there's a word that's used here in verse 20 uh, when it says that they straightway, they immediately left their nets. They left something behind. Well, notice in Matthew chapter 6 and in verse 12, Jesus was teaching the disciple what we call commonly the Lord's Prayer uh, to address God in heaven, our Father, uh, to... Uh, say, as it says here in verse 12, to ask God to forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You ever heard people say, well, I may forgive him, but I'm never going to forget what he did. The word forgive here in verse 12 is the same word used over in Matthew 4.20 when we're told the disciples, Peter and Andrew, left their nets behind. They immediately left it behind and went off to follow Christ. When you forgive someone, when you ask God to forgive you, what do you want Him to do? You want Him to leave your sins behind. When you and I forgive, that means we turn loose. That means we let it go. We leave it behind. When we forgive others, and after all, didn't... God inspired Micah to write that He wants us to love mercy, to really place great value on mercy. Remember, Jesus told the Pharisees, Matthew 23, we already referred to it, your tithe meant and coming and Hannah's, and you've omitted the weightier matters of the law. You've omitted the weightier matters of the law, righteousness and mercy and faith. They left out something. They left out the very things that are brought out in Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. Notice, the, notice one other scripture along this line over in Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13 and verse 8. Here we uh, uh, find, again, one of Christ's parables. And he talks about the... Uh, uh, this is a parable of man had a tree and the tree wasn't bearing fruit and he was getting ready to uh, uh, chop it down, get rid of it. And the uh, servant talked to him and said in verse 8, Lord, let it alone this year also till I dig about it and dung it and then if it bear fruit, well, and if not, you can cut it down. The word let it alone, translated let it alone uh, here in verse 8, same word for forgive. They left behind their nets. Uh, they left the tree alone. When you and I forgive, that means we turn loose. We let it alone. We leave it behind. That is what mercy is all about. You see, there's something more important than justice. And what's more important than justice is mercy. How would you like to go before God? You want to come before God at the Passover and say, Lord, I want justice this evening. I want what I've earned. I want what I deserve. I want what's fair and just. I want nothing more and nothing less. Well, if you asked, made that request and received it, you'd be a little black cinder in a matter of moments. Because you and I don't come before God at the Passover saying what we want is justice. 
I want what I've earned. I know what I've earned, and I know what you've earned. The wages of sin is death. Your wages are what you earn. The wages of sin is death. And all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You and I need God's mercy. But if you and I are to be partakers of the mercy of God, Jesus Christ made it very plain in the Sermon on the Mount, in this prayer outline that He taught His disciples. Jesus Christ made it very plain that we must forgive if we're to be forgiven. We've got to turn loose. We've got to let alone the slights, the hurts, the offenses. If you hold on to them, you hold on to the hurt, anger and resentment will build. And it will eat away like a spiritual cancer. You and I are enjoined to do what's right, to do justly. We're enjoined to love mercy, to really value and appreciate the attribute, the quality of being merciful, being forgiving, of turning loose. It's the very opposite of harboring bitter resentment and a spirit of revenge and retaliation. Getting even. That has characterized so much of this world. When you and I are examining ourselves, what we need to examine is what are we doing and what are we loving? Do we love mercy? Are we doing what's just and right? Just and right has to do with setting our affections on things above. It has to do with a whole approach toward God and His law and His ways, wanting to be guided and shaped and molded by Him. That will be reflected in our love of mercy, deeply valuing that. Now, the third quality that Micah mentioned, do justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Notice in 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter's writing here to the ministry. And he enjoined them in verse 2 to feed the flock of God that is among them. This particular section uh, was addressed to the ministry. The whole letter was was addressed to the uh, brethren in general. But now uh, he's exhorting the elders as he mentions in 1 Peter 5.1. He says, feed the flock of God that is among you in verse 2, taking the oversight doing so willingly, not for money, but because you desire to, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fades not away. Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yes, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility." For God resists the proud, and He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. Now, Jesus stated these requirements in a slightly different way. We've made reference to uh, uh, Matthew chapter 23, when uh, Jesus told the Pharisees that they had left aside the weightier matters, judgment, mercy, and faith. Well, clearly, judgment has to do with making right decisions, properly applying God's Word. It has to do with doing justly. Mercy, exactly the same term that Micah used. But Jesus used the term in Matthew 23 and verse 23, faith. How does faith relate to humility? Well, what is the opposite of humility? Walk in pride. To be filled with pride. Pride is a focus on the self. What I can do and what I've done and what I'm going to plan and what I purpose. It focuses on the self. It focuses on the things that exalt the self and the self-defending and protecting. To walk humbly with God means we recognize God's greatness and God's power. To walk humbly with God is to walk in faith. 
to walk in faith. You see, the Pharisees, for all of their emphasis on religion, if you were to ask those men, do you believe that you are acceptable in the sight of God? Do you believe God's pleased with your conduct? They were sure that He was. And they could point to all sorts of external things. Well, we give charity, we give help to the poor, and we... Um, we fast twice in the week and we pray and we do this and we do that. We're very careful with our tithes and we follow all the ceremonies, all the rules. In fact, we've added extra. God didn't have quite enough. We added some extras. Make sure that we don't violate anything. And Jesus said, well, you're careful on your tithing and that's good. That's what you should do. You should be careful of tithing. But you have also left out the things that are most substantial. Judgment and mercy and faith. They weren't doing what was right in the overall sense of how they treated others. They didn't love mercy. And they surely did not walk humbly with God. Because to walk humbly with our Creator involves recognizing the greatness and the grandeur and the power of God. Recognizing how great He is and how tiny and small we are recognizing God's greatness and trusting Him and loving Him, walking humbly with our God. And when we truly walk humbly with Him, trusting Him, loving Him, then it will affect all sorts of things in our lives. Oh, brethren, as we're approaching the Passover, we're approaching a time that is very significant, very meaningful, very real. We're approaching the time that is the anniversary of the sacrifice of our Savior. And our Savior instructed us that every year, at the very same time that He sat down to a final meal with His disciples, the time that is the anniversary of the last Passover supper that He had with the twelve, that we are to partake of the symbols that he himself set apart and blessed that evening, that he said represent his sacrifice, representative of his body broken for us, for our healing, representative of his blood shed for us, that our sins may be blotted out. We're to do this in remembrance of Him. We're to do this as a reminder, as a memorial, year by year, that we might reflect on that sacrifice and what it means. But we're not to come in carelessly and casually and just go through a ritual and leave. Before we come together at the Passover, we're enjoined that first we must examine ourselves. We must look and discern. We must try to look and see what God sees and to examine our lives in light of the extent to which we truly are trying to do justly, doing what's right and good, which we are loving and valuing mercy, turning loose, letting go of the hurts and the slights that have come our way, and to what extent we're truly, genuinely walking humbly with our God. As we examine these things, examine our lives, examine where we are in relationship to what God requires, we're to examine ourselves, and then we are to come before God to partake of the symbols of His mercy as we partake of the bread and the wine in remembrance of Jesus Christ and what He did for you and for me.